Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am so excited to have Mark Gober on the show. Mark is an international speaker and an author of An End to Upside Down Thinking. And he was awarded the IPPY. What, what is IPPY, Mark? It's an independent publisher's organization. Great. Okay. As the best science book of 2019. He is also the author of An End to Upside Down Living and host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind, which is a great podcast. I, I suggest all of my listeners to, to go in and listen to that. Additionally, he serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thanks for having me, Marla. Yeah, it was um, when I saw that you were on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, I dove in um, reading about Edgar Mitchell, mm. and have you have you met him or did you interview him? Did I? I, I no, I joined Ions, uh, the board of Ions, after he passed away, so I never got yeah. to meet him. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, what a guy, you mm. know, and for many different levels. So, Mark, how did you begin this spiritual exploring consciousness journey, consciousness journey? Because I know that's not really was your was your career path. Yeah, not at all. So my background is in business. I started mm -hmm. my career after I graduated from Princeton. I was captain of the tennis team there. I studied psychology and economics, so behavioral economics. Wasn't focused on spirituality at all or consciousness. If anything, I was very much agnostic or maybe even atheistic, nihilistic. Um, and then I, I went into investment banking in 2008, which was a fun time to be in New York, um, and then left in 2010 to join a firm called Sherpa Technology Group where I spent 10 years and became a partner advising large and small technology companies on their innovations. Wow. So that's my background. Um, yeah. has nothing to do with what I ended up writing about and doing a podcast on and speaking about. Uh, so what happened was in 2016, around August 2016, I was listening to podcasts. I wasn't listening to spiritual podcasts or anything like that. It was mostly just business and health. And I happened to stumble on an interview on a health show of a woman who talked about her own psychic abilities and how she used them with clients. And she sounded very serious in the conversation. Like it didn't, like, it didn't sound like she was faking it. Right. Um, so I remember just being intrigued enough to then listen to her podcast, which is called Healing Powers. So I listened to her interview and a number of people that have had similar experiences and or have looked at science that suggests these phenomena are real and not just made up or fictional. So that led me to then look at the science and do the research. And I spent about a year not thinking I'd ever write a book about it, but just because I wanted to learn. And that is what ended up uh, propelling me into this area. Yeah. So tell us some about the, the things that you've learned. I know you've explored all different 
avenues of survival of consciousness um, after someone passes. So can you just tell us a little bit about the different things you've learned? That's a big question, I know. <laughs> it started for me with what some would call anomalies. So phenomena that don't make sense according to the conventional paradigm of reality, according to science and mainstream thinking today in 2020. And so I, I found many anomalies in different areas. And what I realized is that, is that they centered around a single question. And the question is around consciousness, which is our sense of experiencing life, our awareness. It's the thing that's listening to or experiencing this conversation right now. We all have it. And science doesn't understand consciousness. That was one of the big findings for me, right. which is that we know consciousness exists because it's required to even ask the question about consciousness or to study anything or to have a life. Uh, but science doesn't understand how consciousness could come out of a brain, which is what many scientists assume. So everything that I've done is look at this assumption. Does consciousness come from the brain? And what I found is that Science Magazine, for example, has called this the number two question remaining in all of science. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. No one knows how something that's physical, like a brain, could create something that's not physical, like consciousness. That begs the question, what's the first, what's the first question? So the, the number one question is, what is the universe made of? And I would argue that it's around, it's the same issue. Consciousness yes. is, is the basis of the universe. The brain does not create consciousness, which is why Science Magazine's number two question has not been answered. So they're interrelated. And the way I look at consciousness now is, is to say that the brain is, is related in our experience of consciousness, but it's not the creator. It's more like an antenna receiver or more precisely like a filtering mechanism or a blindfold. So it's like consciousness is filtered through the brain so that we have a particular experience, but the brain isn't what's creating that experience. It's literally just kind of steering us to have certain types of perceptions. So if that's true, that the body and brain are not creating consciousness, there are many implications. So number one is consciousness isn't localized to the body. So things like psychic phenomena, remote viewing, clairvoyance, mm. telepathy, all these things become possible. And also survival of bodily death. So near-death experiences, mediumship, children with past life memories. All these things are not anomalies all of a sudden. They are only paranormal if we say that normal is the brain creates consciousness, which is an unproven assumption anyway. So I, I would argue that we have to redefine what normal is in a more comprehensive way where consciousness is the basis of reality. And then all of these quote unquote anomalies become very possible. Right, right. And so I guess you're talking about materialism when, when you speak of the old train of thought, if you will. Many believe that that's every, most just know that that's that's not true that paradigm is is somewhat somewhat gone so can you just talk a little bit about that word and you already have but what it what it means briefly so materialism it does not mean um the the, the enjoyment of fancy things sometimes right, people get, right. get, get the term confused so in my second book i use the term physicalism which is basically equivalent so scientific materialism or physicalism they refer to the idea that everything can be reduced to matter and everything that we experience in the universe, including biological life and consciousness emerges from matter. So if we take this back to the beginning of the universe, based on what science knows, 13.8 billion years ago, there was an event called the big bang. It filled the universe with pieces of matter and those are atoms. And when you have lots of atoms in this big universe, chance tells us that eventually uh, those pieces of matter will interact with each other. And that's what we call chemistry. So we started with matter 
Now we have chemistry. And then when you have lots of random chemical reactions in this big universe, through chance, you end up with a self-replicating molecule like DNA. So that leads you to biology, which is like a human being, which develops a brain. And from the brain comes consciousness. So this view of materialism or physicalism starts with matter and consciousness comes at the end. Right. And the reason my book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking is that I'm placing consciousness, like many other thinkers in contemporary science and philosophy, placing consciousness at the beginning of the picture, not at the end. So consciousness is actually, in a sense, before matter, if we want to say that time is even linear, which is a separate question. But basically, consciousness is the basis of all reality rather than matter. Right. Right. You know, I, w I remember when I was at the um, science and non-duality conference where I briefly met you and listened to Donald Hoffman talk, Dr. Donald Hoffman, he's just brilliant. And he used to be a materialist. I guess that's what, you know, scientist. And he said that now he's He's changed his mind. He's now, you know, believes what, what we both of us believe. But he said that his fellow scientists that are still materialists, he would argue with them that not until they were talking about robots, actually, and, and artificial intelligence, and not until you can teach something like that, how to smell garlic or the feeling of, you know, sad feelings, smelling, I, I guess smelling would be a little bit different, but how you feel when you smell gar garlic and it brings back, you know, memories of when you're a child and things like that. I, I just found that really profound. I, I will never forget that. It's a very important point because what a lot of people are saying in, in the field of artificial intelligence right now is if we can just replicate the way the brain works, right. since consciousness comes from the brain, then we could create a conscious machine that is capable of having feelings and is capable of sensing things in the way that a human does. But that makes a materialist assumption that consciousness will somehow emerge from the brain. Right. And what I would argue, and I think Dr. Hoffman probably feels similarly, is that it's, it's much more nuanced than that, that the notion that a machine could actually feel is not something that we even know. And I think it's, I would argue that it's impossible. Uh, um, so that's, I think it's really important, especially when we watch shows that are on TV like Westworld, which, which is basically this um, dystopia of, of artificial intelligence where the machines develop memories all of a sudden because right. they reach a certain point of complexity, then they take over. And what I would say is that artificial intelligence could be dangerous also could be very helpful right. could be dangerous if the humans program the machines to do certain things but not because the machines themselves will develop greed or human emotions because i don't think the way we're creating machines right now is, is a way that is going to produce consciousness i mean i guess in theory we could we could somehow create a biological form of machinery if that's possible that could filter consciousness in the way a human does maybe that would be a, a form of artificial intelligence in a way, but that's more of a biological intelligence versus what we hear of in the media. Right, right. Well, I also remember them talking about um, virtual, virtual intelligence. And what excited me about that was a little bit of what we're talking about, is that it could be a very good thing because it could help one feel the way maybe that starving child feels or that really sad or someone in a solitary confinement feels and hopefully develop empathy. So that's, it's bringing it back to 
you know, the, the consciousness of right now with us in the human form, but to help, to help develop compassion and empathy. Does, does that make sense? What I just said? Yeah, it does. I think that's probably the best way to develop empathy is to somehow feel it through the other person. And right. this brings us to something we were talking about right before the interview started, the life review phenomenon. Exactly. In the death experience. We're just this thinking is, of that. That's like, that's the most visceral way to have an experience through someone else's eyes. And I think right. the best, my favorite example is that of Daniel Brinkley, who I interviewed for my podcast, Where's My Mind? He had four near-death experiences. He was electrocuted, struck by lightning, um, had open heart surgery twice, brain surgery once. And each time he had a life review where he relived the events of his life through the eyes of the people that he impacted. And for him, this was particularly meaningful because he fought in Vietnam in his earlier days. So during his life review, he had to relive the deaths of the people that he killed. And not only that, but he felt the pain of the child that would no longer have a father because Daniel had killed the father in combat. So this is demonstrating the interconnectedness that that I'm speaking of at the level of consciousness and is also a kind of the ultimate way to experience empathy. And so Daniel exactly. came, Danny came back from that experience forever changed. And he went from being a very materialistic person who cared about more superficial things to becoming a hospice volunteer. Wow. And then not to mention to put the life review along with the research on past lives of children, past lives of really anyone, but children are there are just so profound because they found so many of them to be, be true when they go back and look at the, look at the research. And just to know that then you come back and just try to be a better person, you know, learn those, learn those lessons. again. Because I remember in your interview with, um, Dan, Danian, is that how you say it? Yeah, Danian, yeah. that he said he really tried to come back, you know, and, and, be, and be a great person, but we are all human. But just to bring the reincarnation back into that too, if someone doesn't have a near-death experience. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings up the implications of all of this. So how do you walk differently in this world after diving deeply into this topic? Well, I mean, very, I think very differently than I used to. I used to think yeah. consciousness came from the brain. I wouldn't, I would have, would not have even said it that way because I thought it was already just known. That's what it that's, was. That's just what it was. I didn't even question it. So that implies then if consciousness comes from the brain, then when the brain turns off, when the person dies, there's no consciousness, there's no memories, no thoughts, feelings, emotions, they're all gone. And I was a very literal person, I still am. And so I took that literally and thought about the implications. And so I reasoned there is no meaning to life. I could try to create meaning while I'm living, but that would be artificial and that would be a rationalization, but there's no intrinsic meaning to anything. Once I die, it's gonna be over and the universe is random. We, can't, we, we emerged from the random combinations of pieces of matter. So why does anything matter? even though I still went about life. So that right. was my old paradigm. And right. now, now I'm talking about past lives and near-death experiences people have when their brains are essentially off or completely off. And so I, I view life as, as very meaningful now. And I think I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that is to the extent a human brain is full of comprehending any of that. Um, but I, I do think the consciousness continues beyond the body and that reincarnation seems to be part of the cycle of learning and evolution for an individual consciousness within the broader consciousness. Um, the analogy that I often use is from Dr. Bernardo Castrup, who says that we are like whirlpools in a stream of consciousness. So we have these individual experiences as whirlpools, but we're fundamentally interconnected as part of the same stream. So the water doesn't leave the stream, even if it stops 
being a whirlpool. It just transitions into a new form. Uh, so um, yeah, my perspectives are very different. I, I see the interconnectedness in everything uh, much more than I used to, or it's just, it's just more top of mind than it used to be. And also I view my own existence in this body as kind of a blip on an infinite time scale. And mm. so I think I'm still adjusting to that. Yes, yes. How do you personally, I mean, do you think your friends and family, loved ones have, have seen a change in you after diving in or do they all just kind of think you're <laughs> well it probably depends on it probably depends on who you ask <laughs> some people probably think i'm nuts and some people probably think it's cool what i'm doing yeah. I, I i do think people have noticed a shift in me and actually around the time that i became exposed to these topics in 2016 and i talk about this in my new book into upside down living i was going through a difficult time a lot of things in life weren't going my way, business, personal life, combined with the fact that I was a nihilist and I was about to turn 30, realizing that all the things I was striving for actually weren't leading to happiness and I wasn't hitting the goals that I wanted in certain areas, even though I had already achieved a lot. So I wasn't in the best place. And since this kind of awakening experience, I'm in a much better place. And I think people have noticed that. And also my, my life has actually changed. So I spent 10 years at my now prior firm and decided to leave in December of 2019, or I gave notice then. And then in early 2020, for a lot of the COVID stuff, I was actually transitioning out of my role. So from being a career business person, you know, like that was my life. That's all yes. I did to now I'm doing many, many hours of meditation a day. And I spend most of my time researching and having conversations like this and thinking more about what I'm doing to help people in the world. I just feel less like I actually need anything. I really, I don't feel like there's that much that I need other than just basic stuff to stay alive. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking more about what I can be doing to contribute. Contribute to the world, mm -hmm. to humanity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about meditation a little bit. How did you, I'm sure you, when you went into research and contemplative, you know, practice came up quite a bit in if you studied Buddhism and all those things also, um, what kind of meditation, not what kind of meditation, but what has meditation done, done for you? Well, I will start by saying that meditation is somewhat new for me. Even though I got involved in all this stuff intellectually in 2016, I was very resistant to meditation until several months ago, really, uh, because I just couldn't sit still. Right. And um, I went on a meditation retreat, a silent retreat with Mukti, who is Adya Shanti's wife. She's a teacher as well. And this was in February of 2020. Six days, silence. Uh, there's a satsang, question and answer with her once a day where some people could ask questions. But other than that, there was no even gesturing at people. And so that, that experience kind of ignited a lot of energy experiences where I actually okay. feel energy and the chakras. I mean, I'd read about chakras, but I didn't was sort of fictional to me and mythical. And now yes. it's, I mean, they're very real in my everyday experience. So that started through the process of meditation and the way I look at meditation. And so actually it, I, after that meditation, I wrote my second book the week after, and then I went on another silent retreat with Adi Ashanti, Mukti's husband for five days. So I did a lot of meditation in a short amount of time. And since then I've continued it. Um, if we view the brain as a filter of consciousness, then that would imply when we get the brain out of the way, it's possible to experience this enriched reality 
So, so things like near-death experiences where the brain's kind of knocked out, people have these very enriched realities. Psychedelics, there's research now that's suggesting that brain functioning is reduced during a psychedelic trip when people have these enriched experiences of ultra reality. We see this with savant syndrome, people that yes. have impaired brains and yet they have incredible mathematical abilities. So there's this pattern of less brain, more consciousness. And I think meditation is another example of that. By getting into a state, however one wants to do it, whether it's transcendental meditation, like repeating a mantra in the mind or focusing on the breath. In my case, meditation is more of a surrendered state where I'm, where I'm consciously just trying to tap into the intelligence of the stream of consciousness and just be a vessel for it. And sometimes I'm thinking a lot, other times I'm not. Right. But in any case, I think it's quieting the brain somehow, quieting the mind. If we think of consciousness as the sun, to use another analogy, it's like we all have clouds that are blocking the sun. The sun's always there shining its rays, but through conditioning and lots of thinking, we have clouds and emotions that get in the way. Right. And so meditation is a way of removing some of the clouds so more of the pure rays of consciousness can come in. Yeah, beautiful. Very, very well said. So I wrote, um, gave you a few questions that I wanted to expand your mind a little bit more and how you thought after all this research, what if as a little, little child, you know, when you were still seeing spirit and still close to the source and maybe remembering it, maybe, maybe not so much, if you would have been in an appropriate way taught, taught these things that life, you know, continues. And I mean, just to even think about if you're raised thinking about the life review, you know, in childlike terms, what do you think the implications would be if we, if we started, you know, redefining, reteaching a new paradigm for, for this information? Well, the, that's an important question and it really gets to the heart of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because I think understanding these ideas that this is just built into the nature of reality itself. These are not just fantastical ideas. This is based on a lot of right. science and philosophy that this is the this is the most sensible paradigm of reality where what you just described the interconnectedness the fundamental nature of consciousness so i think it would shift everything in the world if mm -hmm. a large number of people had a shift in consciousness uh, but when i think back to my own life if i had understood these topics when i was really young i have mixed feelings about it because i probably would not have prioritized the things that i ended up prioritizing which ironically, or maybe not coincidentally, led me to be able to write the books that I'm writing and to do the podcast because I was so well-trained. Right. I might not have cared enough to train athletically, academically, if I knew what I know now. Right. So there might be some method to the madness of the struggles that I went through and sort of almost military level training for, I mean, investment banking is a really brutal environment, at least for in business and being and a And in 2008. Athlete. Yeah, I mean, it, everything I did was was not military, but it's that kind of a mindset of, right. of hard work and learning and having to be perfectionist. I would have had different priorities if I understood yeah. what I now know. So there's, I have mixed feelings about it. Right, but, but would, you, would it have to be that way? I mean, maybe you could still be very, you know, business-like, but just be a little happier in your heart. And you're right. I, it's it's a tricky one because I, I don't think it that is. having this mindset uh, excludes or precludes being in business or being in in the world. I'm right, not saying right. that at all. Yes, I yes, just know. No, I know. 
But I, I think for me personally, just you know knowing yourself. myself, <laughs> right. I would have prioritized things differently. I would have been a heavy meditator. Maybe, who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe I would have just done the same things, but with a different attitude and less stress. Yeah. Maybe I still, because I like sports, I still would have done sports. And maybe I just would have enjoyed business more than I did. Whereas before I, I viewed it as pretty much a constant stressor. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to think about too. And are we meant to, I don't know if you want to call it remembering this conversation, but obviously we must be meant to change our paradigm because something's happening in the world. I mean, don't you believe things are transforming and this information, I mean, just the near-death experiences in themselves. I mean, they say there's millions now and it's, it's not an anomaly, exactly what you said in shared death experiences and these past lives. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's time that we do remember and transform a bit. What, what do you think about what's happening in this world today? In this I think we, we have to transform because the prevailing paradigm of separation and the idea that we don't survive beyond the body, that is that leads to toxic thinking. Yes. In the end. And even if people wouldn't acknowledge it outwardly, when push comes to shove, it will lead to very selfish behavior behavior mm -hmm. and potentially negative behavior and power seeking and things like that. It will just drive people in a different direction. And my, my second book starts with the question, what is the overall intention of your life? The answer to that question, that's what I spend a whole book building towards based on a scientific worldview. The answer to that question depends on your view of reality. And I think the view of reality, the prevailing one, this materialistic one, maybe not many of your listeners, but I think in the mainstream, materialism is still the prevailing paradigm. Yes. That leads to what I think are the problems in the world today. A lot of the conflict is based on a misunderstanding of reality. So I think correcting a view of reality is the only way that we're going to fix this at the core level. Any other correction is kind of like fixing a symptom rather than the disease. Yes. And I know, I don't know if you've read Life Cycles. I'm Christopher no. Bosch. And I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he talked about the three different perspectives. And I'll just say this briefly. One, um, being a um, materialist is, you know, you live, you're born, you take a while to get out from under your parents, you go to school, you go to college, you get married, you have kids, maybe you do something sort of important for the world and you have some grandkids and, and then you're gone and, and nothing happened, you know, and, and you total dust to dust. I hate that term, but anyway, um, so what, it doesn't explain suffering. It's like, why does one person, and then the second perspective is that exactly the, like the first one, but you go to this nirvana, this heaven or whatever you want to call it. And the third perspective is the only one that makes sense, which is reincarnation of suffering, that you plan your life, you learn the lessons, you come down, and yes, it's hard, and we all suffer, but we learn, and then we come back to learn more, and always try to do better and do better, and it explains in our limited mind, as you talk about, because we use such a small part of, of our brain, if you will, why some people end up on in this world as a little child that doesn't have enough food in Africa versus, you know, someone who, who ends up here in a much 
maybe happier home, or at least on the outside, it looks that way. So I don't know. I always just found those perspectives very, very enlightening because the others just don't explain that. What do you think of that? And you're reminding me of some of the research done at the University of Virginia, initially by Dr. Ian Stevenson and now Dr. Jim Tucker, where they've studied over 2,500 cases of children who have memories of a previous life. Sometimes they're able to find historical records that align with what the child describes. So very remarkable cases that where they they conclude that reincarnation is the best explanation. Um, But in some of those cases, the, the children report intermission memories, a time between lives, and there's a pattern in what they describe. They often talk about beings, sort of like what's described in a near-death experience, so some kind of intelligence that's not physical. And they also talk about choosing their parents. So this is the University of Virginia seeing a pattern in over a 1,000 kids, a subset of their 2,500 they had in a a database that they evaluated. And they found that the children with intermission memories actually had more verified memories of a past life, which lends credibility to their intermission memories in between lives. This is, I mean... That's totally life-changing, especially like I'm thinking about my perspective four years ago. That, it's wild. <laughs> and it's so, it's fascinating. It's so exciting. And it just, just to know that there's so much more and there's a reason for all of this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, we need to wrap it up, but thank you so much for coming on. And do you have any, um, let's talk about love. What do you think love has to do with all of this? <laughs> My view on love is that it is not an emotion, but rather it is an innate quality of this single consciousness that we are a part of. So when we experience love, it is kind of a removing of whatever is veiling us from our innate nature. So when it's we experience love with another person, it's the recognition of ourself within that person. That's the way Rupert Spira, a non-dual philosopher, describes it. And I think that is, that is one of the ultimate solutions to the world's problems, is recognizing our unity. And I think a subset of that is recognizing that love is the underlying quality that connects us, because it's just built into the fabric of reality. It's not just a, an idea. This is what people experience when the brain has gotten out of the way. They talk about this experience of bliss and unconditional love, whether it's near-death experiences or meditation or any other thing. Right, right. When I went, I went to a plant medicine workshop and when I was there, they suggested that we take a picture of when you're like two, two or three years old and you put it on, of course, you put it on your screenshot on your phone and, and just getting back to that pure, innocent love, back to your true authentic self. It, It was really powerful for me. I loved that idea. Well, I think as children, we have fewer clouds to use that analogy, that the sun is, the rays are shining through more strongly. And as we age, we uh, learn things, we have new conditioning and emotions come in. So we develop these clouds that end up blocking us from that innate intelligence of consciousness, which is made of this love, bliss, whatever it is, this thing that's just innate within consciousness. Yeah, beautiful. So do you feel like you have more love and bliss in your life? I definitely feel more of it. And I think it manifests in overall peace, which I think is another quality of consciousness. I think love and peace are kind of two sides of the same coin. And I notice it a lot more in my meditations now that I'm meditating so much that this overwhelming feeling of of peace will come over me. And that's very good. (laughs) 
Yes, very good for many different reasons. Well, thank you so much. And if people want to find you, Mark, where, where would they do that in your books? My books, An End to Upside Down Thinking and An End to Upside Down Living, are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major bookstores. My website is markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. My podcast is called Where Is My Mind, and it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major players. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much, and um, you have a great rest of your day. You too, and thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.